Hello, my name is James Rudd. I'm the Digital Media Editor at Heart, and I'm delighted to be joined today on this episode of the podcast by Dr. David Adlam, who joins me from the Department of Cardiovascular Sciences, University of Leicester. David, many thanks for joining us on the episode of the podcast. And David, you've recently written an education in heart paper, which is called Spontaneous Coronary Artery Dissection. Great to get you on the podcast to talk a little bit more about it. Perhaps we can start off just really by asking about, do we know how common uh, spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD actually is in the population and who tends to be affected? What we know uh, is that SCAD is probably not as rare as we first thought. So if we go back in the literature, um, we tend to find uh, spontaneous coronary artery dissection described uh, almost exclusively as a disease of pregnancy in the peripartum period or in association with inherited connective tissue disorders, things like Marfan's and Erlos Danlos and so on. And certainly um, dissections can occur in those contexts. But what has been recognised uh, since the introduction of early coronary angiography for ACS cases and the increasing use of higher sensitivity blood tests and troponin to, to uh, identify patients for angiography, it is that the vast majority of patients don't fall into that group. Um, most patients are uh, female, perhaps nine out of 10 are women, um, but uh, the vast majority of them are not pregnant and they don't have pre-existing connective tissue disorders. And I think um, those of us that are, uh, if you like, at the coal face of coronary angiography for acute coronary syndromes, um, are in you know finding that uh, there are certainly you know they're not common but there are certainly a reasonable number of these cases that come through the cath lab uh, during the course of the year. Okay, and do we know much about the etiology of the condition in terms of its pathology? So we know the um, if you like the basic pathology of what happens. Um, we know that there is an accumulation of blood in a false lumen. So essentially, the, I, I often describe this as being analogous to a bruise. So if you if somebody kicks you in the shins, you get a bruise on your shin. And, and as the blood accumulates, it gets tense and painful as the pressure builds up inside. And this is essentially what's happening inside those layers of the wall of the, uh, of the coronary artery. So in the outer third of the media of the vessel, this bleed occurs. And as the blood accumulates and uh, clots within the vessel wall, so pressure rises uh, within that false lumen. And uh, uh, by compression of the true lumen where the blood is supposed to be flowing, uh, you then get secondary coronary insufficiency and infarction as a result of an inadequate blood flowing past that compressing hematoma. So we, we understand that. We understand, if you like, the basic pathology. What we don't really understand is the underlying pathophysiology of the condition. Why does this occur? Why do uh, some patients, obviously, as I said, predominantly female, uh, get this? It, it doesn't seem to be um, strongly inherited. There are some uh, mother-daughter pairs and sibling-sibling pairs who have uh, spontaneous dissections who have been described. We have some in our series. Um, but this is, you know, again, they, they are a rarity rather than uh, rather than the sort of typical presentation. Most cases seem to be sporadic. 
Um, again, most cases don't have inherited connective tissue disorders. Some patients have inflammatory disease, but again, these are small groups. So we don't really understand, if you like, the underlying risk profile of these patients beyond perhaps that there, there does seem to be some sort of a role for female sex hormones in terms of the fact that these patients are, are predominantly women. And David, how do they tend to present? Does it tend to be similar to what you might call a common or garden ACS presentation? Yes. Um, so presentations tend to be with almost always are with ACS and the presenting symptoms are usually very classical for that. So patients present with typical chest pain, with a typical radiation of that chest pain, um, and a, a, you know a small uh, group of patients will present with um, uh, with an arrhythmic presentation, or, or obviously tragically, some patients. Uh, you know, the first thing that's known about them is that they present with a sudden cardiac death, and uh, SCAD is is a cause of sudden cardiac death, regrettably. What's the best way to to diagnose it in terms of uh, excluding other causes? I suppose a high index of suspicion in in the relevant age group is important. That's absolutely right. And I think one of the main pro major problems that we see with the patients that we look after, we have about uh, 450 to 500 patients now with this condition that we're looking after. Um, and uh, delayed diagnosis or missed diagnosis is very common. All of our emergency medical systems and doctors are geared towards the, ident the early identification of high-risk atherosclerotic acute coronary syndromes. And of course, these patients with SCAD often fall into the lowest risk categories and therefore they you know, frequently don't raise the degree of, uh, of concern that, you, you know, that, that one would hope they might. And so, you know, it's not infrequent that patients have been discharged and then a troponin is, is, is subsequently checked and found to be elevated and then they get recalled. Um, so in terms of the, uh, the best way to diagnose the condition, that remains by coronary angiography. And actually um, uh, outlined in the article actually are the, are the different types of angiographic uh, presentations of SCAD. But once you get your eye in, most cases of SCAD can be diagnosed angiographically. There are a small number of cases um, where the appearances are less clear. And in those cases, intracoronary imaging can uh, essentially clinch the diagnosis. But it is a, a, an important diagnosis to make because the management of this condition, both uh, in, in terms of interventionally and afterwards, is uh, different to that for conventional atherosclerotic acute coronary syndromes. Mm. And something that struck me from your, your article was that the, there is very often spontaneous resolution of the dissection without any recourse to, to PCI. Can you talk a little bit about that and the fact that many of these patients will get better uh, on their own without us doing anything to the coronary arteries? Yeah, so the, you know, left to their own devices, it seems that the overwhelming majority, it's difficult always to say absolutely all, but the overwhelming majority of 
scads will heal of their own accord, usually over a period of somewhere between six weeks and six months, and probably earlier in that time course rather than later. And again, if we go back to the analogy of the bruise on your kicked shin, uh, you know, essentially over time that bruise reabsorbs back into the body and your shin ends up as sleek or otherwise as it was before. And uh, the same, if you like, is true in uh, these hematomas in the vessel wall. Essentially, they reabsorb over time and the coronary architecture apparently seems to return effectively uh, to completely normal. And, and this is of great importance because obviously that's not true for atherosclerotic coronary disease where stenotic disease is, is a fixed problem. And so if you can uh, uh, manage these cases conservatively, then uh, they will heal. And, uh, you know, I, I accept that you can't always manage these cases conservatively, but I think quite a lot of the time, you know, you do get cases that present with acute coronary syndromes, but they're often non-ST elevation events. And if there is sufficient flow down the artery to maintain myocardial viability, um, then often these lesions are best left alone because if you start to get involved with stenting, again, there are particular problems with uh, stenting dissections, um, which make them, you know, much more likely to have adverse outcomes from PCI procedures compared to atherosclerotic stenotic coronary disease. So it's best to be cautious, as you say, in patients who are stable, you can you can afford to wait and uh, and see how things develop. Is there any role for medical therapy in these patients, David? I think the medical therapy in SCAD at the moment is, uh, you know, is not based around any uh, clinical studies. So we have to be careful about uh, giving very strict advice. But I think there are some things that we can think about in practical terms about therapy. So first of all, these are patients who do not have atherosclerosis. And therefore, by definition, their pathophysiology has nothing to do with cholesterol. They're often, you know, young, uh, otherwise fit patients. So the logic of giving these patients statins, I think you can question. Likewise, I think you have to think, particularly in those conservatively managed patients, about uh, dual antiplatelet therapy and indeed antiplatelet therapy uh, per se. I think that, you know, this is a controversial area. But antiplatelet therapies do cause problems with things like menorrhagia in uh, these patients who, as I've said, are predominantly young women. And so if the patient has not had stents, then we have to think again about the relative merits of antiplatelet therapy for a condition which appears to be caused primarily by an, uh, the development of an intramural bleed. And so having medications which prolong bleeding time you know, uh, is questionable, if you like, on a pathophysiological level. So I think we, you know, there are lots of things that we don't know about the optimal treatment, but equally, I'm not sure that in uh, a lot of SCAD patients, the sort of one-size-fits-all post-myocardial infarction medication package is necessarily the right approach. I think they need a much more tailored approach and careful consideration needs to be given to the fact that, you know, they're uh, often young, menstrual women, low blood pressures before you start piling in with your, all of your kind of conventional treatments. 
So, you know, I think we tend to manage our scared patients a little bit differently. And I think that that is, um, you know, that is, a, you know, probably a reasonable and sensible strategy. But I think we have to add, always add the caveat that these are, you know, this is based on clinical experience of looking after these patients, not randomised clinical trials, clearly in a rare condition like this. Yeah, of course. And and just to finish off, David, the, these patients do seem to have a relatively high recurrence rate. And you talk a little bit towards the end of the article about follow-up of the patients in terms of imaging. Is this something you do for every patient, uh, repeat imaging at some stage, or are you guided very much by by symptoms and how the patient gets on? So I think we are moving towards a sort of, uh, you know, a, a, a common group of investigations which are useful in these patients. Um, in terms of, uh, I'll just deal separately perhaps first with the question of recurrence. Recurrence is well recognised. We certainly see it in the patients that we look after. Um, the frequency of that recurrence, I think, is something that we will understand more as you know a, a number of studies in which uh, we and others are participating publish in the next few years. I think there is um, something of a uh, selection bias in some of the large registries at the moment that we have to bear in mind. So just to explain that, if you're a sort of if you if you're sicker and you've had a worse experience with your scan, you're more likely to go and present to uh, somebody who's super specialist or collecting registry patients with this condition. And I think that has led to a, perhaps an overestimation of the risk of recurrence, although you know recurrences clearly occur. So I think that it is now pretty well recognised that SCAD is not an isolated coronary condition, uh, but certainly in many patients, maybe all patients, is associated with a generalised arteriopathy. And we do find remote arterial problems in these patients, including aneurysms, sometimes of the cerebrovascular circulation, uh, fibromuscular dysplasia, for example, of the renal arteries and elsewhere, is again uh, well recognised, as well as dissections in other territories. So I think uh, these days, all patients who have presented with spontaneous coronary artery dissection merit an assessment of their peripheral vasculature. And we do this by MRA, um, basically to reduce the uh, x-ray exposure that will be required for CT assessment. In terms of whether follow-up imaging of the coronary arteries is required, I think that's perhaps more controversial. I think follow-up coronary angiography should be uh, considered with caution because there is now reasonable evidence that SCAD survivors are at higher risk of iatrogenic dissections with subsequent coronary angiograms than if you like the general population. And so I would be quite reluctant to go back in and re-instrument coronary arteries, given that we know that they're more prone to getting uh, difficulties. CT is uh, something that we are uh, doing quite a lot of uh, follow-up CT in conservatively managed SCAD to assess for healing. But I think we just need to add a caveat that that's still subject to assessment as to you know how effective that imaging modality is in assessing uh, healing after SCAD, uh, particularly because of its uh, spatial resolution and the fact that SCAD affects 
uh, more uh, predominantly the mid to distal vessels, where, of course, CT is perhaps not at its best in terms of uh, having an effective spatial resolution. So I think the jury is a little bit out on that. But I think in terms of peripheral vascular assessment, I think that that is uh, uh, mandated now in patients who presented with the SCAD. Brilliant. Well, that's a fantastic overview, David. And I encourage all listeners to go to the uh, HEART website. I'll put a link to the Education in HEART paper uh, in the uh, podcast show notes. And uh, this is a really good overview and people will really enjoy this. And there's far more detail uh, in the paper than we've covered uh, discussing this today. But I think this is a good introduction to the subject. So once again, David, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, please tune in next time. (music) 